Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is Blair Jackson with Jordan Law, and welcome to Facebook Live. Uh, before I introduce our guest, I wanted to um, thank those of you that have been watching our, our previous uh, interviewees and presentations. We've had a lot of good feedback uh, about them. Uh, we try to have different people on from different disciplines um, that will help us all be educated and enlighten us and and uh, sort of try and drag us through some of the difficult times that we're all facing with uh, with the pandemic and the you know the economic challenges that that's put in front of us. Um, we're getting closer to our uh, hundred persons for us to um, to uh, upgrade our platform on uh, YouTube. So. If you are not a subscriber to YouTube, you like what you hear today. If you can subscribe to YouTube and then like us on YouTube, that will uh, that will help us continue to present uh, our guests in, uh, in an enhanced fashion. That's about. I'm not a tech guy, but that's as much as uh, as the smarter people in my office that are more tech savvy can explain it to me. So hopefully, I'm not mangling that. So uh, just 12 more people, and uh, and we're there as I understand it. So. Well, without any further ado, you did not tune in to see my face. Um, I'd love to introduce, uh, and it's my pleasure to introduce, um, Mr. Norman Plotkin. Uh, he is, um, well, I'm going to let him explain exactly what he does so that I'm not giving you some kind of ham-fisted explanation. Um, and so without any further ado, I'll turn it over to, uh, to Norman. Uh, hey, it's a pleasure having you, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Blair. Great to be here. Well, uh, I'm a hypnotherapist, and what does that mean? We'll get to, I guess, in a few minutes. But uh, I, I write. Book, I'm an author, written a couple books. Uh, I also coach people, and uh, I came here from somewhat of a circuitous path. I started as a, a clerk in the legislature, and spent a 25 year career moving from clerk to consultant to, to lobbyist and uh, was fascinated by that and, and really loved what I did. But it's a bit of a caustic environment and um, I ended up sick. I had cancer and uh, in 2011 and uh, that's a world unto itself as well. And uh, the, that experience shaped uh, the changes in my life uh, you know, when when you get the diagnosis, you you study best you can. Of course, the internet is a whole lot more expansive today than it was then. But you you do the best to study. You ask the questions: Where did your doctor go to school? What get a second opinion? Um, under, trying to understand the underlying disease and and the, the best approach. And and you go in with a good attitude and you follow directions. Problem is the physicians as good as they were. In fact, I was a lobbyist for the medical association. I knew hundreds of doctors. Uh, and so, um, sure. yeah. So uh, the problem is as good as they are, they don't go home with you and it, and they're not there at 11 PM when the walls begin to close in and the questions arise that you forgot to ask in your 15 minute, you know, uh, appointment with them. And so uh, it became clear, you know, I had, I, I had uh, the, the operation where they removed the organ, then I had two rounds of radiation and 
I made no lifestyle changes. I, I went back, you know, and you, and you, and you pump yourself up. Woohoo. You got a good prognosis. It's, it's well understood. It's well differentiated. Uh, it responds well to treatment. It, if you got to get cancer, this is the best kind. All of these things we tell ourselves and uh, wrap ourselves in. Um, and, but if you don't make the changes, like there's a saying, uh, before you heal someone, make sure they're ready to give up the thing that made them sick. And so, when it returned uh, six months later and I had to have another round of radiation, I experienced fear for the first time. I'd, I'd never really known fear. Uh, the kind of fear that is like a bad reflex. You know, uh, there's just no escaping it. And uh, that's when I began to go inward. And a friend how of mine- were, How old were you then? Uh, so. 40, I was 47. Okay. Yeah, in 2011 and then 40 on my 48th birthday, I was radiated for the second time. Mm. And uh, I had a friend who she had been in politics with me and uh, she was did a political PR and she she got out of it and opened a yoga studio. And she took me through therapeutic yoga for cancer and she taught me how to meditate. I mean, the same thing that made me a great analyst. Uh, my analytical mind uh, also made me, uh, ha you know, go into monkey mind. When, you know, when that in those moments where I, you know, I spoke about at eleven o'clock when no one's there to answer your questions, and so uh, learning to meditate was difficult at first, and it is for most people because in today's society it's a twenty-four-seven wired. You know, um, when I coach people and in hypnotherapy sessions, in the cognitive part of the hypnotherapy session, I have them turn off the electronics uh, at night, you know, and, and have a buffer between when you're on the electronics and when you try to go to sleep. But at any rate, she really, I, I credit her with saving my life because learning to get control of my overactive mind and learning to meditate and go within was the single biggest uh, change I made in my life that helped me transcend the, the threat of cancer. So here we are uh, nine years later, and uh, my most recent tests are, are clear. And that's great. Yeah. And so, um, but I'm, I learned the lesson that I had made no lifestyle changes. So I largely stopped drinking. I, I learned about Ayurveda, which is the yogic medicine and, um, and, uh, learned about my dosha and you know, it's not to say western medicine didn't direct me to a great place it's just that when you add that spiritual element to it it's a dimension that cuts through the fear mm -hmm. and the unknown and before we go any further i just wanted to take a step back so that we can in your previous career you mentioned it was a caustic environment. We talked a little bit off camera and you used the same term. Can yeah. you describe what it was about that? Because I'm sure that a lot of people watching this, certainly myself, I could probably identify with some of, maybe all of what you're describing. So kind of lay that out for us. Sure. I mean, you start and you're, you're wide eyed and bushy tailed and, you know, I was a government major and, um, uh, so I came into it with high ideals and uh, perhaps a bit of naivete. And uh, at the end of the day, it's it's a doggy dog, cutthroat, dr money driven. And 
I was still an idealist, you know, years in, I was an idealist and I, I would write my testimony and, um, you know, give it with conviction. But if, you know, if you didn't, if the other side had more money, <laughs> they won. Yeah. It's a, it's a bitter pill to swallow, uh, but it is what it is. And so when your psyche is wrapped around, you know, I was competitive. I was a Marine. I, you know, I played sports and mm. you know, you want to win, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so often I did and often I didn't. And when I didn't, it, it was difficult because when you, you know, I showed up with a superior argument and that wasn't enough to win. So is it also that you felt like you were letting down your clients, maybe unrealistically, like yeah. one, eight of the nine of these, however, winning was governed. But uh, that one that you didn't win, you obsessed over or felt like you let them down or they of were course. and couldn't deal with it or. Yeah, I mean, I, I represented, I represent associations like uh, automotive aftermarket. These are mom and pop stores and and repair facilities, and uh, you know, this is their hard earned money, and they and they band together in association to try and uh, influence legislation that that impacted their their livelihoods. Uh, I also represented small petroleum, you know, the wildcatters in Bakersfield who just do a few barrels, <laughs> you know, a wide range of of folks who are just um, you know, trying to make it work. And, um, yeah. and so I, you know, I would, I would try and manage their expectations, but, you know, in California, um, it's, it's, uh, uh, the political landscape is, um, it's, it's difficult for business. And so uh, to your point, absolutely. It was, I not only did me personally want to win as someone who strives for the best, but it was also difficult to let down uh, let down. And then, and then there was an event, I'll tell you, this was uh, a critical thing. Um, every, every two years, you have to uh, go through an ethics training course. Of course, I'd been through for 10 years, I'd been through it as a staffer. And then for 10 years, I'd been through it as a lobbyist. And I waited to the last minute, they offer three or four of them, I'd waited to the last minute. And on the last day, I had to appear before an executive agency who was holding a hearing on on global warming all right it was it was a big deal and they, but they held in LA and I had to travel to LA and represent my clients and I couldn't be in Sacramento for the ethics hearing and oh right they made, they made an example of me and they 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 took you know they they removed me from my lobbyist registration I had to get someone to come in and co cover my clients it was very embarrassing you know I'd done this for 20 years, I've been through these ethics trainings. I wasn't going to learn anything new. I didn't act unethically, but here I was caught in this thing. It was very embarrassing. And um, and that it was kind of something that led to, uh, you know, there was, um, there was a physician in the 70s. His name was Carl Simonton, and he was a radiological oncologist. And, and he's, uh, he, had this theory that um, after seeing lots of lots of patients, that the we have these traumatic experiences, and if we don't resolve them, they get pushed down into our gut, and it's very painful, and it manifests in various ways, sometimes somatically in our body, and right. uh, and that at some point the subconscious mind can perceive. Uh, the only way out of this pain as death. And it can uh, modulate your genetic expression and your uh, neurotransmitters 
that affect your immune system in a negative way. And so it's really important that you understand when you go through a traumatic experience and that you learn to resolve them. And so th this was just one of those, but, uh, and it was within that larger caustic uh, environment. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I got sick and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's never just the cancer. It, it uh, my marriage didn't make it, you know, it, it created pressures on everything. And all the things that I thought I had worked so hard for, the big house, the fast cars, and you know, all these material things that, that, I, that I thought were so, such a large part of my identity uh, were threatened. And that's where the, the real fear came. And now I'm fighting for my life and, and lose all of my stuff. And so I went within. And thank goodness I had this friend who helped guide me through it. And, and that was, this was the impetus for writing the first book, Take Charge of Your Cancer. And it's really, it's really was directed for men who, um, it's really important that you have something to do. Being an inactive, you know, just going where you're told and doing what you're told to do, it, it's, it's not an empowering state. So it's the seven proven steps to healing and recovery, and one of which is meditation, diet, meditation, releasing your repressed emotions, uh, communing with your subconscious mind, uh, taking charge of your uh, health care and having a reason to live. These are all powerful things that you can do as, a, uh, as someone who's engaged. And engagement is so important in healing and recovery. And... In addition to these things, I've just, I've, I found, you know, I just said a little prayer that I asked for a way to put myself into the service of others and, and to move away from what I was doing. And instead of helping corporations and associations and politicians that instead to help people, I read uh, Wayne Dyer's book, The Power of Intention, and it was my intention to to be of service. And within a week, I was directed to the only nationally accredited College of Hypnotherapy in Los Angeles, HMI. And oh, yeah, and so this is where I had never been hypnotized. I didn't know anything about hypnosis, but I I believed in the power of the mind and the studying that I had done. And so uh, so I did the, it was an 18 month uh, program with residency. And, and uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning about it. And I found it as my avenue to, uh, to help people. Sure. Well, it's refreshing to also hear you say that, you know, you really didn't know anything about hypnosis at that time, because probably that puts, you know, with me and 99% of the public, I, I won't even go through, I thought about asking you about all the misconceptions about what you did, but we probably don't have enough time for that. So, right. Uh, you know, I, what we know is watch the watch from, you know, older movies. And, you know, uh, I remember Gilligan's Island. I think uh, the professor puts uh, Gilligan to sleep by, you know, doing that. I mean, these are, this is the level that at least I'm feeling at. So, um, so I guess the way we could approach it is this, if I come in to see you and I just, I'm, you know, feeling anxious, or maybe I'm dealing with a physical health issue and your type of treatment has been recommended to me, sort of uh, kind of walk me through what 
how that would work. I sit down in your office and what do you need to know from me and how do you decide what the best sort of prescription is or best course of action is to, you know, to, to help me heal, I guess. Yeah. The, the greatest uh, single thing that I learned in school was reflective listening. And so uh, when I was a lobbyist, I would listen to respond. And now I listen uh, for, for other reasons. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of a, of, of a client. Uh, she um, has a high position in the legislature, but she's been dealing with fibromyalgia for nine years. So fibromyalgia is an autoimmune disease, and uh, they, the physicians, uh, they, they took notes. They collected the list of symptoms that they had, and they said, there's really nothing that we can do. Here are these pills to help you with your pain. And so for eight years, she took pills until she was fed up with pills. She kicked them on her own. She had tried acupuncture. And um, and then we've we're, we're known each other for many years. We worked at the Medical Association together. So she, re she we, we reunite. She understands what I'm doing, and she, she signs up for some sessions. So she comes in, and I immediately I take a history uh, mm -hmm. of, her, of her life. Okay. See, see, most of these things begin in childhood. And so understanding... Childhood uh, experiences is super important. Yeah. Um, so I do a, a deep dive into her history, and there was trauma. She grew up on the other side of the tracks with a single mom, and there were some things there, but she thought she'd resolve them. Uh, and so I I did kind of my basic initial approach was inner child. We go back and love on that little girl inside and tell her everything was okay. So there's some inner child work. Then um, and then I'll do something like um, uh, uh, a session where take her into the garden of her life and rake up all the dead old leaves of people and things that no longer serve her or hurt her and torch it on fire and plant new seeds. And so that metaphor is very powerful. And then in the next session, I asked her, uh, are you ready to give this up? She goes, yeah. I said, if you could, would would you let go of this? She said, if I could, if I could let go of it, I would have a long time ago. I said, but if you could, would you? She said, yes. So um, I took her into hypnosis. Just to clarify, do you mean let go of the the condition? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and everybody so, say yes, and then you're probing, right? So. Yeah, because I get, I get her in a yes set. I'm moving toward yes, right? And then I ask her, well, what was going on in your life when this started? No one had ever asked her that. And she had gone through uh, a, bat, a bitter divorce with uh, custody issues. Oh. And she had been in the Air Force. She's a tough exterior, a, a professional woman in a man's world. Uh, and But inside, she was a marshmallow. And, and I mean that lovingly, right? So um, what she had done was she had somatized this emotional pain that she had a hard time with into her physical body because she was tough physically. And so I took her into hypnosis and I did an arm stiffening, which is basically you just, you have them put all of their pain and, and anxiety and stress and everything in their arm and make it really stiff and rigid and then let it go. So that, that was a, a preconditioning. And then, so I had asked her, what her life would be like if this was gone, what she would do, 
the things that she would do, who she would do it with, what it would. Be. So I took copious notes about what it would look like. And so then in, when she was in hypnosis, I gave this all back to her in her words, exactly what life would be like, the things that she would do. And I said, when you're ready to let go of this, your arm will begin to lift and rise. See, I'd pre I had preconditioned her to an arm raising. And I said, when you're ready to let go of, of this disease, your arm will begin to lift and rise. So this is part of the hypnosis progress, a process that you're explaining now. That's right. She's in hypnosis. Yeah. And I first did the arm stiffening and now I'm telling her now I've read her back. She's just in deeply relaxed, focused concentration, deep relaxation and uh, and nothing happened. And when I was a brand new hypnotherapist, I'd have been mortified, but I've been doing this for a while. So <laughs> I Oh my God, I'm not doing it right. All right. In a minute, I'm going to tell you why that's important. Um, and so I waited and I waited and I waited. For her, there's time distortion. When you're in hypnosis, the time has, there's, it's, it's completely distorted. So I wait. It only seems like it forever to me. And so then I say it again and I wait. And all of a sudden, her arm begins to lift and rise, lift and rise. And it gets up to this point where it's out like this. As I'm reading and, and I'm telling, I'm reading from my notes, all the great things her life is going to be like. And, and that a, a smile comes to her face when she does all of these things. And I and and I left her like this. And then when I brought her up out of hypnosis, the first thing she saw was her arm sticking straight out in front of her. Wow. So, so now she just made a conscious connection to their subconscious realization that she's ready to let it go. So you and don't I, use a watch then. Right. Eye fascination is just one induction. It's the one that we all seen in the movies and stuff. Yeah. Eye fascination is an induction into hypnosis. I can do eye factor fractionalization. I can with eye closed, open, closed. You can't get anybody to remember the movie Get Out. You know, the guy goes out and smokes a cigarette and he comes back and his, the girlfriend's mom says, I can help you quit. She's a psychiatrist. And he says, no, nah, he says, no, nah, I'm all right. And she tinkles the teacup and he goes to a dark sunken place. Look, they take just enough. You know, this is what Hollywood does. They take they take a little bit of stuff <laughs> right. and, they, and they and they blow it completely out. So happens anyway, with lawyers too all the time. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I I can imagine. So um, so I go I, I go two weeks before the next session. Usually a week to two weeks to let this. And I email her and I say, "Are you ready for your next session?" She goes, "Yes." And I'm afraid to ask, but I do. I said, "What would you like to work on?" And I hold my breath, waiting for the email reply. And she says, not pain. She says, motivation. I've been depressed for so long, I can't get my butt out of bed. So then we went into motivation and the pain, pain's gone. Pain's still gone. And I'm watching her on social media blossom and her got her life back. That's great. And she tried everything else, right? She tried, she tried, every, she tried everything. Yeah. And it was these repressed emotions. And her, her, her subconscious mind was afraid of that emotional pain, even though the threat was gone. And so right. the subconscious mind loves the known and hates the unknown. So let me go, let me give you share something with you about the, there's three things that needed for a hypnotic modality, and you're going to appreciate this. Um, uh, authority, a doctrine or a paradigm, and you have to feel something. All right. So let's get let's go through a couple of examples. Sure. There's some obvious ones. Um, a collar, and maybe. Uh, 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 robe and collar and an altar and then you've got the book which is a doctrine and paradigm 
And do you feel something in church? A lot of people do. Yeah, sure. That's hypnosis. How about this one? Lab coat and stethoscope is the authority. The medical books are the doctor and the paradigm. Do you feel something when you go to the doctor? You ever heard of uh, white coat syndrome? Don't you know not a good place to get your blood pressure tested? You could get good news. How about this one? Robes up on a rostrum. The legal books. Do you feel something when you go to court? These are all hypnotic situations, and people can just step right into trance. They're mesmerized. Mesmer was a guy in the 1700s who uh, was an early um, pioneer in, in this, the, the game of hypnosis. He was later, uh, you know, he, it was magnetism, and that's, it's a deep story I won't go into. But anyway, in modern times, we talk about mesmer, being mesmerized as being in a trance. And so uh, there are a lot of, and people say, well, did Hitler hypnotize the German people? I go, well, he wore the uniforms, the, not the National Socialist uh, doctrine. And, you know, you saw him march in the streets and stuff. So um, so these are all hypnotic. And, I, you know, I'll tell you another one. You've got the CDC and, and Dr. Fauci standing up as authorities. You got a doctrine or a paradigm of, virology and germ theory and are people feeling something right now so um there is we are in a state of mass hypnosis and you can see people going crazy on social media and arguing about masks and you know it's um it's it's a hypnotic state and it's created by authority uh doctrine or paradigm and and a feeling so at any rate, well, uh, I don't know whether to thank you for that assessment or <laughs> feel depressed by it. That we, well, know. I guess, identifying that and and what you're saying makes sense too, right? It, as we're going through this, we're trying to make sense of it in our own minds. I have to admit, I've thought about this from a lot of the pandemic from different perspectives, but not from what you described as perhaps we're all going through a mass hypnosis. And so we're acting out in ways that ordinarily maybe we wouldn't or we respond in ways that we wouldn't and, you know. Yeah, that's right. And so information, but so we live in the information age and we're just overloaded by it. Right. Information, information used to be power, but it's powerful in a different way now. People are manipulated by information. They're overloaded with information. They don't know where to turn. You know, I, I used to, you know, I used to, as a lobbyist, I could, I could uh, produce a study on either side of any issue. You know, it's really, and science has become dogmatic and, and politicized. Um, you know, literally, I, I, I could produce a study on any side of any question. And so it's discernment. Discernment is a critical component of our modern world. And, and that's a nice segue right into um, going within. Mm -hmm. fear, fear is known as false evidence appearing real, false evidence appearing real. You remember the allegory, Plato's allegory of the cave? I marveled when I, when I read about that, you know, he was talking about a fire and doing hand signals that creating images on the wall of the cave and be careful about the imagery. And at the time I thought, well, that's television. <laughs> Plato, right. Plato, <laughs> Plato predicted television, but the imagery, you know, we have, we have to find discernment and there's no better, more reliable way 
to reach discernment than to go within. And so that's why meditation is so important generally and now specifically. Because before, before I ask you about uh, meditation, so do you always prescribe or, or do you always use, I guess, hypnotic treatment when you're seeing somebody? Or is it sometimes a situation where that's not where they could benefit more from some other treatment plan? Or is that always, always, always part of your, um, you know, heal, I guess part of the healing process for your patients? Well, here's, here's the bottom line. My scope of practice says that I have to perform hypnosis. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's my, that's my certification. And so I must now in the cognitive portion of the interview, I'm connecting um, thoughts and behaviors that they, they may not have been aware of, you know, oftentimes it's really helpful to get perspective, to gain perspective. I've reached, I've reached the point where, uh, there are common themes. And when I begin taking a history from folks, uh, it, it becomes very clear that they're trying to please their dead father or they haven't resolved the five stages of loss of a, a loss. I had, I had a client, she came to saw me, came to see me for uh, sugar addiction. So we did three sessions and I did negative reinforcement on sugar and she, she was doing fine. And it was really hard for her. She, she, you know, she ran an organic products uh, company and she was not happy with herself that she couldn't control the sugar. And so we did three sessions and she did really well. And, and, but I had taken my copious session notes notes. And so when she called me three months later um, and said, I fell off the wagon, can you help me? I said, yeah, get, come right in. So I broke out her file and I began to read through it. And so when she got there, I, the first thing I asked her was, you know, you said you thought you dealt with your mother's death. Let me ask you, did she bake for you? Did she make cookies and cupcakes when you were a little girl? Did you guys bake together? She said, yes. I said, this isn't about sugar. This is about your mom. Yeah. Are you, are you hanging on to this connection to your mom? And so we did, we took her through a session for loss, coping with loss. And the sugar, the sugar, it was never about the sugar. So, so I may, and people just are amazed when they come in and I tell them it's not, it's never what they present. <laughs> it never is. Or almost never, right? Almost, yeah. almost never, almost yeah. never. I mean, the fellow I'm, you know, I'm seeing right now, he's got tinnitus and it's not about the tinnitus. It's about, you know, things from his childhood. So, sure. Well, you know, and before we talk about the meditation part, I mean, you just really hit on something there because at least in my life, um, you know, uh, and people around me, friends and family, you know, at my age, I just turned 55 and it seems like we're all communally, my friends, everybody, they're going through that loss of a parent or their parent is suffering from dementia. So essentially they felt like they've lost them. And it seemed, at least in my experience, like that's when, you know, I was an attorney, whatever, I could handle it, or I thought I was handling the stress, relatively speaking. And, and then it seemed like for me, when my dad passed away, um, I felt like I accepted it. I probably didn't give myself enough of a grieving time. But then I felt like I was, you know, I never used to cry. And that was crying at the stupidest of things or, 
You know, all it would take is to see my wife cry and then I would cry or even a dumb movie. And I'm like, what's the change? It, it, it almost felt like it really kind of broke me open, you know? And so I think that you saying that definitely, I think it's something that we can all sort of relate to because, you know, what's been on my mind a lot is just why is it that it seems like these things aren't concerns or if you have childhood things, you put them away in your 20s and 30s or whatever. But I've been warned about this too, but somehow, there's something about turning 50 and getting into your 50s, it makes it incredibly difficult. And I think you identified one of those. We probably don't, you know, we, we, we know cognitively that it's part of life, that we lose people. And, and, you know, so it makes sense to us logically, but dealing with it emotionally, it seems like we have a hard time or it haunts us until we properly figure out a way to, to heal from it, I guess, right? Well, death is a part of life. Yeah. And if our concept of death is darkness and nothingness, there's a lot to be afraid of. But remember, fear is false evidence appearing real. Right. I faced death when I had a threatening disease. And I came to understand in my worldview that we, our souls are eternal. Our, our, our bag of biology is temporary. So we're eternal souls living a temporary earthbound existence. And if you realize that, that our experience doesn't end when our biological body dies, that you can connect with through the veil, loved ones who've transitioned, um, then, then it's far less scary. But, you know, the uh, Kubler-Ross, I mean, there's been, there's been, research uh, since then, but but tried and true, I lost a brother in 88 in a car accident and it really, it, it changed my life. That's when I, I stopped working in the oil fields and, and building cable TV and I went back to college at 25 and, and had a whole different life and I and I was grateful. I called him my unwrapped gift. His, his death woke me the heck up, right? So anyway, with Cooper Ross, there's anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And you can toggle between these and um, and we're never, you know, you're never quite sure it, uh, whether you have, unless you've, you know, you just feel like you've dealt with each of those. And, and then you're reflecting on your own mortality as well as the loss of the individual. And that's, exactly. That's a critical piece. I don't think I put that together until right now. Thank you. Yeah, of course. We check, I think. So, yeah. Um. Yeah. Our own mortality. <laughs> Our first taste of that is when we go to buy life insurance, but it, it's brought yeah. home more succinctly when, when you lose. I, I was in a position to, in the last two years, care for both my mom and my dad. They weren't together, but they died within a year of each other. They each had a stroke, and I, I, I cared for them both in the last year. Had I been that self-important lobbyist, <laughs> highfalutin, you know, I wouldn't have had time for anybody. But because you know, the universe just placed me in a place to, to care for both of my parents, and so um, I'm certified in hypnotherapy for coping with loss. And it's a, it's a big piece. I'm always do a check-in with people about uh, their, their willingness and their ability to move through each of these stages and uh, to, to reflect and to release. Mm -hmm. These repressed emotions are, are deadly. Uh, if, if we don't let go, if we hold on tightly, um, it, it, it can be really critical. So, well, so I, I want to transition you because I, I took us off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it was 
very worthwhile, at least, you know, for me it was and hopefully for others. But so I want you to be able to talk about meditation and how that works, because that's another area that most of us don't understand. So, yeah. Yeah. So the the. Um, Victor Frankl was a, a psychiatrist from Vienna and he was in the concentration camp and he survived and he made little notes that he sewed into his clothing, uh, you know, about you know, who survived and why and, and the things that led to it. And he later developed a whole uh, 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 psychological uh, uh, regimen called logotherapy. And he wrote a book called Mankind's uh, Search for Meaning. But there's a quote of his that, that I just, I live by. And that is that between stimulus and response is a space. And in that space lies your power because you get to decide what kind of human being you want to be. And so on, on one hand, it's incredibly empowering. And on the other hand, it creates responsibility. And so people want to hide and shirk it, hide from it and shirk it. So, um, so I tend to focus on the empowering side and using space, using that space, being to take a moment before you react, right? And it's the same principle for um, your inner world. Uh, going within, we our higher self has all the answers we need. The problem is we are in an ex exceedingly complex world and we tend to externalize much of our experience. And if you if you externalize and give it up to the to the world instead of taking responsibility for yourself, then it's easy to become a victim. And once you become a victim, then you rob yourself of your own power. So the first step toward empowerment is going within, being quiet and still. I so the coaching part of what I do is I teach people to meditate. I run a group uh, virtual meditation on Saturday nights and uh, by Zoom in this crazy world, and it's kind of interesting. Yeah. But um, but and the first thing I tell people is you don't have to put your you don't have to contort yourself into any kind <laughs> of position. <laughs> your hands and feet just be comfortable. Sit. This is yoga. It's uh, meditation. exactly exactly. Now there's a place for that higher level, you know, meditators, you know, maybe you'll achieve that one day. But to get started, set yourself up for success. You know, go dedicate a, a place where you can be quiet and still for 10 minutes. And, and I like to recommend people do it in the morning because you start your day quiet and still and just understand that thoughts will come. And it's our attachment to thoughts that gets us into trouble because before you know it that first thought about breakfast is now you know bacon whole wheat toast cage-free eggs oh they're all cage-free you know what i mean now you're seven layers into the question of breakfast right 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 so instead just say breakfast ah i i dismiss you you know and just and there are so many so many tools today uh you can put your earbuds in and go on uh youtube and 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 uh, uh cue up a, a binaural beats or 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 a gentle tune. I don't like the guided ones so much personally. I like, I, uh, my favorite is um, a crackling fire with the Native American drum and, and flute. And I just, I just go within. And so that 10 minutes, if you, you start with three, work your way to five, get to 10. 
the Dalai Lama said, I, I meditate for 20 minutes every day unless I'm stressed, and then I meditate for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so um triple it up or whatever yeah yeah you uh it's really so you you be kind to yourself know that thoughts are going to come dismiss them without getting and just bring your attention back to breath you know there's all kinds of things you can wrap your head around uh, the, uh visualizing the breath come in your nostrils the cool breath comes in your nostrils and goes in and down through your airway and filling your lungs and getting warm and then the warm air is expelled i mean the, that level of detail um is um is, is really really helpful to give your mind something to focus on instead of right right where i have to be and who i have to you know be with or you know whatever the, the million things joe dispenza will tell you that every day we have 60 to 70 thousand thoughts and 90 percent of them are the same as they were yesterday and so in order to make change, you, you have to break that. You, you know, it's, it's, you can't get up and jump out of bed and, and jump right into the, those same 60,000 thoughts. You'll never make, do anything differently because thoughts are the language of the mind and emotions are the language of the body. And so thoughts, you know, produce the emotions. And if you can be without thought and without emotion for just a few minutes and sit with yourself and be quiet and still and access that inner world so i i tell people irrespective of their religious beliefs prayer is when you talk to your god meditation is when you listen and if you're quiet and still you might get some answers right and it's not just sitting quietly <laughs> so like you said you have to be mindful about it there's a process and probably you have to practice at this right like anything else um, it, it, it's a practice. It's a meditation practice. Absolutely. It's, um, uh, you know, it's the, it's defined as the non-judgmental awareness of experiences in the present moment. Now that's, that's a Western explanation for what is for all intents and purposes, largely an Eastern, uh, practice, but, um, there, there's paradox in, uh, being quiet and still and receiving during quiet stillness and the western mind has difficulty with paradox the, right. eastern, the eastern mind not so much like the um the uh the taoist uh concept of wu wei non-action right we're striving we're we're striving and and uh and struggling and and how about we just stop and don't do anything and act only at the right moment you see, uh, uh, the famous speaker of the of the state assembly in California, Willie Brown, used to say, "Don't confuse motion with progress." Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so you're just striving. So non-action seems like we're being worthless and and not contributing. But um, there's a place for it. There's a place for non-action, uh, and it what it's doing is it's preparing us for right action. Right. And, and so that's where that, those moments, when you go within, um, I have people that, so the, the um, uh, so mindfulness and meditation are closely, um, closely aligned. Now, mindfulness, uh, I use a lot with people who've suffered trauma. Mindfulness is just being sitting quiet and still with your eyes open and 
maybe you have your coffee mug and you just give your complete and total attention to your coffee mug. Notice its shape, its texture, its size. You know, no, just, just be with that and nothing else, just with that coffee mug. That's complete mindfulness because, you know, our, not, our autonomic nervous system, the fight or flight, it, it developed evolutionally, you know, you know, through evolution, right? And so today we don't have, we're not presented by a saber-toothed tiger that we either have to pick up a stick and fight or run like heck, right? So instead, if we have things that, that we can't run from, we get depressed. If we have things we can't fight our way out of, we get anxious. And this gets put into our body and it becomes anxiety and depression. And so putting things in context, recognizing our own power and, and uh, taking actions towards empowerment and being quiet and still are all ways to address situations that might make us anxious or depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that, that, that makes perfect sense. And uh, we spoke to somebody yesterday about mindfulness on Facebook Live. So that's a nice, I'm glad that you sort of made a nod to that and explained some of the difference with respect to that. So um, we're kind of running out of time. Was there anything else that you wanted to, that we didn't touch on that you wanted to sort of get across to all of us or? There's um sure, appreciate it. There's, there's a three volume set called The Course in Miracles. You don't, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Love is your birthright and it resides in your heart center and its opposite is fear. At any moment of any time of any day, you can choose love over fear. And all you have to do is just, I do regular check-ins with myself. Am I coming from a place of love or fear? And if we stayed in, from a place of love and stayed away from fear, the world would be a very different place. Excellent. Well, I do have one last question and that is, um, uh, and, and you have to be honest, uh, did you hypnotize me at the beginning of this? And have you been directing the entire interview? <laughs> I did not. There's a famous, there's a famous uh, uh, psychiatrist. His name was Milton Erickson and he mastered the handshake induction. And so physicians from all over the country would come to seminars and learn from him, but no one wanted to shake his hand. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, maybe I was sort of half joking. You never know. So, uh, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Norma, it was an absolute pleasure to have you today. I believe we have all your information uh, posted um, through uh, through Facebook Live, so people will know where to get your books, and or at least what the titles of the books are, and and maybe how to to get in touch with you. And uh, hey, it was a pleasure. Uh, take some of what you've told me and uh, try to put it into practice myself. So, all right. Well, thanks for the uh, the opportunity. It was m my pleasure. Oh, absolutely. Thank you.